Well, our text today from 1 Timothy says and shows that God is not indifferent about the lost. Christian, I hope that you know and feel that God has a particular care for you. Christian, a particular care for you. But do you ever wonder if he cares about anyone else? Maybe it's just us. Does God have a care for the lost? This text today shows that God is not indifferent about the lost. And shockingly, how God will show that he desires the lost is actually going to be through the avenue, through the witness in the testimony of a church, a properly ordered church. That's kind of the, the rhythm going under the, the letters of First Timothy, that, that God wants to make himself known to the world through a properly ordered church. Now, in this passage, it's important to see that the view of or scope of God acting right, or how we're to act right and how we treat sin and how we express the gospel to the world. In this passage, Paul will tell this elder, this pastor, they're the same thing, this, this part of his church's ministry will be opposing false teaching in teachers. It's one of the ways they're a witness to the world is opposing false teachers from the inside of the church. And in earlier passages, Paul says that it's Timothy's responsibility as an elder in this church to actually call out false teachers, put them back. And what Paul tells Timothy in the book it is not only obvious, it informs not only that church who he's talking to in particular, but it's also informing us today, here, our ministry, Cross Point Church. People far too often think of a church as having various ministries, which we do, but biblically speaking, a church together, a church gathered, a church's members have a ministry. Think of this. If we were to all join hands and look outward, how are we advancing towards darkness there? This is what some people, where some people will use the words mission. What is the mission of that church? What's the mission of Cross Point Church? What's the mission of another church? This church is all about this. That church is all about that. It's a great question. I hope you know the answer. The answer is worship. The mission of our church is worship. Well, how do we do that? It sounds great. And that we're helped here by 1 Timothy and even 2 Timothy and honestly, the entire Bible. A church's ministry, though, requires certain actions by the church members and by the elders. And these actions help. Think of it, think of it this way. God calls the church to do certain things, to be organized in a certain way, to act orderly, not chaotically, in order to be a witness to the lost for the hope of salvation. So how we function, how we operate, how we treat each other, how we understand authority is actually going to be a witness to the world. Thankfully, God gives us his word, his voice, telling us what we're to do. Lead people to a saving understanding of him. Uh, I just want to ask, if you're here and you're not a Christian today, we're, we're so thankful you're here and I know that a lot of people, when they come to church and they're not a Christian, they kind of just want to be left alone and like maybe, maybe even sit in the back or even in the cry room behind the glass where no one can talk to them or see them. And I just want to, I just want to encourage you to do that. Just watch this morning. I'm going to be mostly talking to us, like our people, my people, Crosspoint people. But watch. Seek to understand why, why is it important for the church to call out false teaching? Why would you, non-Christian, think that that's important for us? Or why is it important for the church to pray in a certain way? Maybe as you're viewing in, you can see why it's so important for us to act a certain way. Now, the trick here is hopefully this action actually turns toward you 
and invite you into an understanding of Christ. This passage gives us three requirements to be faithful. Proper pruning, verses 18 through 20. Proper prayer, verses 1 through 4. And proper planting, in verses 5 through 7. The mission of a church is worship. And what are the requirements of some of that worship? The first way is proper pruning. Here in verses 18 through 20, a church must properly prune what is wrong. Church's ministry requires pruning. Look at verse 18 of the text. This I charge... This, uh, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage good warfare. Paul entrusts this command to Timothy. Now, what command is Paul talking about in verse 18? That's, that's answered in what was previously, previously written in verse 3. Look at that. Paul says, Timothy, to stay in Ephesus, this church, to command false teachers to stop their false teaching. And Paul doesn't passively out of the air say, someone should do something about that in this church. He tells Timothy, get in there and oppose false teaching. Growing up, I was in the Boy Scouts for a couple of years, and I took this class at camp called Emergency Preparation. How can, how can I, a 12-year-old, prepare for emergencies? One of the things, if you come up on a car wreck, or maybe something happens at a pool, or something's in a house, it is not good within that emergency, to say, someone should do something. Someone should call 911. But rather, you might say, John, call 911. Angie, go get towels. Last night, I spilled water just all over my desk and laptop. And I blurted out, Brooke, get towels. And she probably just absolutely panicked. I was in another room. She's propped up, pregnant, watching a show. And I've got to, you know, she's got to, uh, walk in gracefully. Walk in to help me. I, I'm, yeah, I, I will get better. Same thing here in this text. <laughs> oh, and I'm not going to look at her. All right, same thing in this text. <laughs> Timothy says, "Elder pastor, confront, charge these false teachers to stop talking, to shut up." Timothy has a responsibility to confront false teachers in accordance with the prophecies that Paul gave. You might remember in the book of Acts, chapter 13, where Paul told Timothy, I'm going to leave here, but be careful. There's going to be rooting of false teaching that will rise. And when that happens, I need you to go to work. And so then he, in a fulfillment of that prophecy, he writes him now and it says he needs to go to work. Now, how does one do that? How does one stand down people who speak wrong about Christ? Paul gives instruction here for this war in verse 19 in our text. Look at that. You do it by keeping or holding faith. How do you confront false teaching? Keeping or holding faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected. Some have shipwrecked their faith. Okay, you want to confront false teachers? How? You keep faith and a good conscience. Faith is trusting in Jesus. It's the regular reminder of the gospel, the regular proclamation of the gospel, the teaching of the gospel. Christians should never tire of the gospel. That's what we want all the time. What do you want someone to talk about next week? The gospel. Why? Because in part it fills us, and in part it exposes them. But also you not just keep faith, but also you have a good conscience. A good conscience is obeying Jesus' word, his scripture. How do you confront false teaching? You teach truth. What does a lighthouse do in the water? It shows where truth is. Sin undermines our ability to do that. So Paul says you've got to keep faith and a good conscience. But then Paul does something pretty aggressive and striking here. He names forever two people who had done this very thing. 
They'd failed to keep faith. They'd failed to keep a good conscience. They had taught wrongly. So if Paul says, hey, do this and this, and here's a permanent example of those who have not done that. Verse 20, what does it say? Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may not learn to blaspheme. That is a rebuke. Paul names two guys. What'd they do? You might think, my heavens, what did they do to permanently in this, be in this text? It must have been something terrible. 2 Timothy chapter 2 says that Hymenaeus taught false things about the resurrection. 2 Timothy chapter 4 says Alexander the coppersmith did harm to Paul and vigorously opposed his teaching. That's how he harmed him. That's how they were stirring up this church. They were doing the opposite of what we're commanded to do. We're We're commanded to devote ourselves to the teaching of the apostles. Alexander didn't do this. One was talking against a biblical view of the resurrection. One was talking against what Paul was clearly saying and what we have recorded in the scriptures. Why Hymenaeus and Alexander did, what they did was teach heresy, who were in open opposition to Paul and his own teaching. And, they, and they've made a shipwreck of their faith by doing this. They've ruined themselves. And how they do it? Well, by falling away from faith and a good conscience. So Timothy and the elders are to keep faith and a good conscience The implicit instruction is, if you don't keep a faith and a good conscience, you will go the way of these two who have shipwrecked their faith. You might have not thought that was going to be that kind of rebuke. You know, you might have thought, these people must have murdered someone, or cheated on their wives, or just thrown down. But what they were doing is they were defaming God with their words, and it ruined their lives. And what Paul says is, put them out so that they will not destruct anyone else. Look at what he says at the end of verse 20. Paul says that he delivered them over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's, that's extreme. And what's he talking about? I want you to notice the language here mirrors. So Paul wrote 1 Timothy. Paul also wrote 1 Corinthians. This language in this verse mirrors what is known as church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5. In, in chapter 5, Paul says that you must hand unrepentant people out of the church and hand them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh so that their soul might be saved by Christ Jesus. In other words, the church has the responsibility, the command in this passage, the authority from this text to discipline members who won't repent of their sin. The church has the responsibility to prune the branches when there are members who are unrepentant. The the ministry requires pruning. Paul says that he's done this before. He's handed these two over to Satan, which means he set them outside of the church, the domain of God's people, God's spirit. He's put them back in the realm of Satan and under his influence. We think that, that the greatest place that you can be is actually within a membership of a church because you're entrusting yourself to people who promise to care for you. So to be outside of that realm, we think is a very, very dangerous place, which is why the gospel calls people in. And it is showing that, hey, out there, it is scary. That's where Satan rules. Not in here, Satan rules out there. So why does Paul or a church do this? Remove unrepentant people from membership? Why, why would a church excommunicate someone? Excommunicate means you, you bar them from the from the Lord's Supper table, the communion table, you excommune them, you, you make them a non-member? It's because Paul, is it because Paul hates them? 
Is it because a church hates someone? In unrepentance, does that mean the church hates you? No, it says in the text that this teaches them, whether they like it or not, it teaches them not to blaspheme. There are consequences of denying the gospel. It means you're not one of us. Removing them from the church in this context teaches them to stop slandering and defaming God with their false teaching. Paul's hope is that they'll repent from this. His hope in setting them out is that they'll become miserable so that they'll become brought in by repentance and brought in to be restored. 1 Corinthians 5, the the hope isn't that they'll stay there, it shows. The hope is that they'll come back, that they'll see the one thing they're missing, and it's repentance. Now, why is this? Well, years ago, or one year ago, one year and four months ago, some of you know this, my dad was taken to the hospital where they discovered a massive tumor in his brain. His cancer had gotten into his bones, shot up his spine, and went to a tumor inside his skull. Now they removed it, praise God, quite the scar, but why did they remove it? Why didn't the doctor just say, well, there's a tumor in your head, and that's bad. And you know what? I'm going to speak against it. I'm going to say, that's not good of you, tumor, to be in that guy's brain. In fact, I'm going to preach a sermon to you and say, it is not good for man to have a tumor inside of his brain. I might even say, get out of that brain, tumor. Or maybe, maybe the doctor would say, this is, this is very churchy language, drives me insane. You know what? Let's just love on that tumor. Let's just, let's just love on that, that thing inside that skull. Let's just love him. The reason why is because the tumor will grow, it'll spread, and it'll violently ruin a life. It'll end up killing them. Preaching against the tumor would only help if it leads to the removal of the tumor. Now listen, it's it's a similar thing that when it comes to sin in the body of Christ's church. Preaching against sin is necessary. We're called to do it. But if you ever get to the point where you're comfortable with preaching against sin and not removing sin from your own life or from the life of the church, that sin will eventually, that air will eventually grow like a tumor. It'll spread like a tumor. It'll, it'll do what God's word says it'll do. It'll kill the body. John Owen, Puritan 500 years ago, 300 years ago, famously said, be killing sin or it'll be killing you. It's a tremendous phrase and it's not just personal, but Paul says it's actually corporate. We're We're not called to be trigger happy when it comes to church discipline, sin hunters, but we need need to be long-suffering with one another, understanding that personal ongoing repentance is how we kill sin in the body. That's the normal way we're pruning. But Christian, this is part of what you individually are called to do, repent of your sins, but this is also what we're called to do as a body when sin goes to a way of unrepentance. Every now and then, God forbid, a member will stop repenting. From their sin. They'll embrace some sin, some failing, some false teaching. And instead of repenting, they'll harden their hearts and cling to their sin. And that's when, that's when church discipline comes in to correct the wayward brother and to protect the witness of the church. To say, we're going to set you outside until you repent. And if there's no repentance, then they stay outside. This is actually a ministry of the church. This is a requirement of Christ's church. Remember that Paul says, the words that I'm saying are the words of Christ. What happens if we don't do this? 2 Timothy chapter 2 says that Hymenaeus' sin spreads like gangrene in the body. 
Now, a lot of us can't visualize gangrene. So let me just say it's like the spread of a wildfire. Death is inside the body. It's decaying from the inside out. And if the sin goes unchecked, it'll inject death into the body and every organ will become infected. It must be removed. And if a member refuses to remove the sin through repentance, then the church must remove the sinner through discipline. I mean, imagine funding a missionary who doesn't preach the gospel. Imagine funding a missionary who doesn't preach the gospel. Maybe even preaching a false gospel. And then think how tempting it'd be for a church to say, yeah, well, we've, we've always supported them. You know, they're one of us. They've been here longer than you've been here. They're one of us. So let, let's keep supporting them. You know, let's hope for the best. Or imagine someone serving as a deacon or an elder, and they deny the Trinity or the humanity of Christ. Should the church remove them from that role or just go, you know, they're a good guy? Or remove them from membership? What would it say to the world about our gospel if we, who are blood-bought, purchased, redeemed people, want to put up with what we were bought from. What would we say to the world of our gospel, of our gospel, if we still have people who don't believe our gospel in our church and serving? Now, this is where the analogy of removing the tumor breaks down a little bit because there's, there's no hope for a tumor. You don't take out a tumor and then you know, let it become untumor and then put it back in. Whereas there is hope for the unrepentant. The whole, the whole goal of what's called church discipline or the excommunication process, both in first. Corinthians 5 and Matthew 18, the whole goal of that is for restoration, confronting of a sin for the hope of repentance. We should hold out those hope, that hope on people who are unrepentant. Now, friends, I spend my life thinking about and praying for and working for this church to be fruitful, but we'll be a godly and holy, that will be a godly, holy group of Christians. And if we're going to have a faithful ministry, God's word says it'll take from time to time, proper pruning. And we can't afford to flinch when it comes to a time for a defense of what is true about Christ and his word. So what ministry of a church requires, first, is proper pruning. Second, I see this now in chapter 2, we see proper prayer. Ministry requires, secondly, look at verses 1 through 4, a church's ministry requires praying. Paul urges Timothy to lead his church in praying for all people. But I want you to notice the little word starts out, maybe in your translation, the beginning of that text. It says, then, or therefore. What he's saying is that because I'm entrusting you with the pastoral duty of opposing false teaching, therefore, you need to pray. The church needs to pray. Why? Because prayer is the means by which a church combats false teaching. I think that's the flow, the natural flow of the argument of this text. You need to prune and here's the means by pruning, pray. But notice he doesn't say send prayers, but he specifies four different prayers. Supplications or requests. Prayers, which is a general term for addresses to God. Intercessions, which is a petition to a superior being. The, the language there is you petition someone over you, so you're petitioning to God who's over you. And then lastly, thanksgivings. The regular calling to mind our need to be thanks to God for all that he has done. But the point of all this is that Paul invites us to lift up all kinds of prayers. Paul doesn't stop with what to pray, but also who to pray for, he says. Pray for all peoples, including, no doubt, those who would be spreading errors and false teaching. We pray that God might grant them repentance. 
But it's not limited to that. He wants Timothy and us to pray for everyone. Look at verse 2. Not just all men, but kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Paul wants us to pray for government authorities, people who are over us. Why? Because government authorities, kings and governors, can execute laws or policies which can either protect Christians or can make them a target for outside enemies. So Paul says, pray for them for that purpose, that we within the church may live a quiet and peaceful life. We're supposed to pray for ourselves that we would have a government that would provide us a peaceful and quiet life, which means a life untroubled by enemies who want to disturb our church's pursuit of holiness. I think, I think this is the tension that we should, as kingdom citizens, be mindful. So we were both in the world, practically, we all know what that means, but we're not of the world, meaning we belong to a, to a different king, to a high king who's over everything, yet he, yet he places us, this is where the tension is, he places us under the authority of the world. This is where the tension, as kingdom-minded citizens, we need to be mindful in prayer of those who are in antagonistic areas where political officials or rulers actually openly hate Christ. Whether that's in China or in California, there are certainly brothers and sisters who their prayer is just to be left alone. Get off our backs. Allow us to meet in the day. Allow us to sing at night. I mean, the singing was great this morning. I've got a friend who passes a church where they whisper their songs because they're not allowed to sing. They're not allowed to sing Christian songs. They're not allowed to preach. They're not allowed to read the Bible out loud. And in fact, if they are found with a Bible, they will be killed. Don't you know their prayer is for whoever that king is, that they just leave us alone so that we can do what God has called us to do. Verses 1 through 2 give us a helpful way from, from the inside to look outward. The people down the street, the neighbors, the friends, the coworkers, the cashiers, how should a church operate? How should a, church, how should a church's ministry be expressed? Prayer for them. But not just around, so this allows us to think horizontally, but even prayers that go up a city manager that they would allow our church to operate in a certain way, a mayor, a governor, a representative, a bureaucrat, that they'd be used by God to leave us alone so that we can worship how God has instructed us to worship. This helps shape a Christian's view, I think, of patriotism. Biblical patriotism is boasting that God is supreme over all nations and that we want to worship him within our nation. And so we will fight and work within our nation to make it great for the church to worship the Lord as he's commanded. There's no Christian nation on earth because God's people aren't organized by countries, but rather by churches. And so a church's view of their own nation is to plead with God that the rulers which are under his providential hand would allow his churches peace and quiet. I wonder how this would help you pray for our country, our county officials, our mayor, I know that a lot of us, we, we pray in a certain way, kind of depending on the season, pro or against certain things. I love reading political history, love reading political science. I don't know if it's ever been worse or it is than now. Uh, I'd like to think it's kind of all along the same on this side of Eden, just with the depravity of man. 
But how do we then act? What do we do? What does Crosspoint do in, in this nation, in this time, under our leaders? What do we do? Paul says, pray for them, all who are in high positions, that they'd help life be easy for our church as we worship, evangelize, disciple, and grow in Christ. Now, part of this is actually knowing what a church is and isn't. When you know what a church is, it allows you to approach the lost in a certain way. When you know what a church is, it allows you to approach a government in a certain way, or a neighbor in a certain way, a missionary, a wayward son in a certain way. When you know what a church is, Paul is telling Timothy to stay within that church, pastor these people, defend them from error, and pray for all people so that this church might be a witness. Now, for what reason? We see this in verses 3 through 4. We do all this, a church does all this, in order and in prayer, because it's pleasing in the sight of God, a God who desires, through the expressive proclamation of a purified church, desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Why do we do these certain things? So that as we're looking out and sharing the gospel or evangelizing or confronting We do all this because it's pleasing to God who wants all of those people to turn to him. Now, let me explain these two verses after I say this. Take a step back, indulge yourself on the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 and think the point of Paul telling Timothy or us to understand the ministry of the church must be a certain way is because the purity of the church is inevitably the means by which people are brought to Christ. We all can think of a a damaged reputation of a church, what that does on a neighborhood or in a city. And Paul is saying, friends, let us clean ourselves up so that others may see whom God wants to come to himself, they may see the beauty that has been given to us in Christ. So things like membership, polity, discipline, liturgy, prayer, the things I know most of you don't care about. Most people care about programs. What does this church have to offer me? How can I get plugged in in this way? Listen, God's holy word says clear as day that an unadulterated ministry of the church, the purity of the church, the shaping up, the pruning, the prayer of the church is because God desires all to live under his authority. How we worship, who we dignify as member or not member, how our church is structured, how we advance ourselves in prayer, how we discipline, how we pray, is because God desires all to live under his authority. And friends, that'll happen by us looking like Christians and acting like a Christian church. A church can form itself and act in such a way that it becomes limiting rather than open with the free offer of the gospel to every single human being. Now, verse 4 causes a decent amount of confusion in some people's Uh, theological pursuit. If God desires all to be saved, why aren't all people saved? Can God make a rock that he can't lift up? Can God desire something that he can't accomplish? And if God does desire all to be saved, why aren't all saved? I think key to understanding what Paul is arguing here is is not only in the scope of the Bible that God expresses his will and desire, but also in the context of this particular passage. I think it's helpful for you to, whenever you see God desires, or God's will, or God's providence, um, those kind of theological hinge points on on how you can think about God in his providential ways. I think it's helpful to think of the will or the desire of God in two ways. One is his sovereign will, which cannot be violated, 
and then his moral will, which can be violated. He sovereignly has a will, like let there be light, there was light. And then he morally has a will that you should obey your mother and father. Well, you might choose not to. That's under his moral will. Different texts in Scripture emphasize one of these two. Sovereign will talks about the sovereign plan that God has for the world. When the Bible says in Ephesians 1 that God works all things according to the counsel of his will, it's talking about his care for the entire world. Romans 8.28, God causes all things to work together. That's in his providential or sovereign will. His care and concern over all things. In that sense of his will, we don't know God's will until it happens. We, we understand God's sovereign will after the fact. Did God will for me to marry Brooke? Well, yeah. Did God will Brooke not to marry someone else? Praise God, yes. We know it after the fact. We perceive it. Some people call this the, the mysterious will of God, a view of his providence which works itself out according to his plan. The moral will of God is different. So sovereign, moral, moral will of his God is different. His moral will refers to his holiness, his goodness as it's executed. His moral will is reflected in the commands of Scripture. Don't kill, submit, love, obey, hear, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's his moral will for you. These commands express God's moral will and human will that can be defied. In fact, that's what sin is. It's a defiance of God's moral will. So when Paul says that it's the will of God, your sanctification, he's talking about God's moral will, and some fall short of that. The Bible speaks of this in both ways, in God's will. So when we look at a text like 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, God desires for all to be saved. Is that the providential will or the moral will of God? Well, I think it's the latter, his moral will. God's moral purpose is that all men everywhere should repent and be saved. So yeah, it's his moral will that all should be saved, but it's not his providential will for all to be saved. Otherwise, all would be saved. That'd be universalism. Now, keeping ourselves in the, in the flexing of the text, what's the point of this? Why is this? Why is this almost seem like a random certain sentence here? Why is this now in Paul's apostolic world? God says he desires all to be saved. God has given the church the gospel to take it to all the nations. God's will for every person on the planet is to repent and believe in the gospel. Some by grace will respond to the gospel. Some will not respond to the gospel. But the church's job isn't to find in advance those who will respond, for we don't know that, but we're tasked with trying to not figure that out, but tasked with preaching, pruning, praying, and later planting. Our job is to pray and to preach to everyone God's will for them. Repent, believe, and be saved. Non-Christian, that is God's will for your life. Ministry requires praying that God would move in our lives and that we'd see with our eyes God saving people, people like us. So we see here that God requires praying. Praying in such a way, pruning in such a way, living in such a way, confronting false teachers in such a way, so that others may see the majesty of the gospel. And friends, God desires all people to come to him. The last thing we see in this text of what a ministry requires is proper planting. This will be the third and final thing here in verses 5 through 7. And there's so much to say. I'm out of time. So let me try to sum it up by saying Paul is saying that there's one God. And because there's only one God, there's only one plan of salvation for the world. The only Jesus, only Jesus is the mediator or the go-between, a sinful man and a holy God. 
That one man, one mediator is Jesus, and that mediator between a sinner and God shows that they are alienated. And so it's the church's job to then plant the gospel in front of people's midst. The ministry of the church is actually worked out in planting the particular message that is exemplified in this verse. There's one God, there's one mediator, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was important... important For this I was appointed to be a preacher, planting this flag in the ground. Recognizing that we can't earn our forgiveness, it was grace given to us. We can't earn eternal life. This was something that God freely gave us through the mediator of Jesus. Meaning, he's emphasizing, there's no plan B for the world, a God who wants all men to come to himself. There's no plan B for this. There's only plan A. So that means the faithful ministry of the church will be that you and I regularly plant the gospel flag wherever we can. That's what it means. I said it in Sunday school. I've said it multiple weeks. It's not something that I made up. What do we want our church to be known for? The gospel. What do, we, what do we want our church to be known in our characteristics and in our ministries and in our pursuit? The gospel. Why? Because it's literally the hope of the world. That's it. You know, we, we didn't... Yeah, I'll go there. Uh, we don't start like a shoeshine ministry, to use a random Random example, I have a shoeshine kit in my office. You ever want to see it? We don't start a shoeshine kit ministry saying that you need to become a shoeshiner because that's not the hope of the world. The hope of the world is that you would repent of your sins and believe in the gospel and that you would go and do likewise. That's the hope. And what he's saying is you need to plant your flag here. We'll trust in the word of God's grace to be the power of God unto salvation to all those who believe saving people is not our job. It is God's job. Our job is to pray and to preach and to prune to everyone and leave the results to him. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and God desires all to be saved and come to a knowledge of that truth. And God declares to all everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day where he will come again, and that flag will be lifted up by him, and he will shatter down a new kingdom on earth. And there will be no hope anymore. There is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So in conclusion, if, uh, if we want this to happen, it's going to take some things for us. I have three things it's going to take for us. The first one, we're going to have to deal with sin. You are most useful to God when you are most submitted to him. You are most useful to God when you are most submitted to him. A church is most useful to God when we are most submitted to him. We, as members of this church who've signed up to be a part of one another, to hold one another accountable in accountability, to keep one another's face on the king. It means, in part, that we will have to deal with the sin for the sake of repentance and keeping faith, and we can't ignore it. Like an amazing garden, imagine. There are some weeds that come in, and a good gardener puts those weeds out. Second, we've got to pray. Evangelism isn't ultimately God's work, but the means by which evangelism happens is from his people. God uses us in his work in prayer. We're making an appeal to the one who can save people. We ourselves cannot awaken a dead heart. We cannot open blind eyes. We cannot prune out the the hiddenness of ears. We can't speak noise to people who aren't listening. So we pray, though, to the one who can, recognizing that he uses us through that midst. And third and lastly, we've got to speak. We cannot preach the gospel unless we use words. There's that phrase from some ancient person that says, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. First of all, he literally never said that. 
all historians are like, that wasn't a quote by him. Also, that's literally anti-gospel. Friend, if people are to hear the gospel that you believe, they must hear it out loud. And if you're talking about the things of the world, they will not hear that gospel. And it really might be you who God has in their midst. We saw testimonies a couple weeks ago for baptisms. We hear testimonies of how people become Christians all the time. One of the urgencies of coming to a members meeting is that you get to hear these these subtle, short testimonies of people coming. And all these testimonies have the same thing in common. I was dead in my sins. Someone told me the gospel. God converted my heart. That's it. So we must speak. Not every convo is going to be one of the gospel, but if someone's going to be saved, at some point they must hear the gospel. One of the things I do is I, I, I like to golf um, on Tuesday nights at Men's League, which they put you up into teams. And it's always this hilarious, funny thing where what do guys talk about when we get together? Basically nothing. You know, but you have to say, oh, what's your name? Oh, cool. You have a family? Yeah, I've got a family. What do you do? And I'm always just waiting for it. And I'm like, oh, I'm a, I'm a pastor. And they're like, oh, great. Typically, they say a lot of unkept things. But they, and I'm like, you know what? Here we go. Let's talk about it. Let's get this over with, right? And then pretty soon, it becomes something that I just try to put in their midst. Not everything's going to be like that in your convo with them. But if someone's going to be saved, at some point, they must hear the gospel. And how will they hear it if you don't tell them? How many of you parents have told the gospel to your kids? Again and again, you tell them to clean their room. Why? Because it's important. Clearly explain the gospel to them. Even try to have them explain it back to you, even if they don't believe it. Do they understand the fundamentals of it? If you don't tell them, you're going to cart them off to other places to infuse what into their lives? Guys, if you're a boss of someone, they kind of have to listen to you a little bit. Could you use that opportunity? You've got a friendship. I said it earlier. What kind of friend, a Christian, doesn't say the greatest thing that God has done in their lives to them? If I won the lottery, I would tell my friends. God the Son came and was crushed for me so that I'd inherit eternal life. All right, let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for what your word says about you, how you are majestic and glorious, that you gave yourself as a ransom for all, that your testimony at the proper time is making your glory known, and we pray that you would cause our church to order itself well, because God, we know that you want all to come to you in repentance. God, give us courage and strength, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.